Hello and welcome to the very first edition of the Alan Parry podcast. It's great to have you here. And in this first episode, I want you to imagine a world which is very different to the one we have now. I want you to imagine corporations put to one side and instead a world where it's not about private profit or greed or many of the things that we're experiencing with the business world at the moment. But instead, our world and our businesses and our organisations operate from the basis of human need. I want you to meet Joe Baird. Now, Joe has been spending their entire adult life trying to fashion a way whereby business and trade and how people work is very, very different than what we're used to because she is a pioneer of the cooperative movement and cooperatives are essentially organizations and businesses which are owned by their own members they might be workers they might be uh, customers they might be tenants and joe is one of the top experts in the cooperative movement she set up uh, the equinox housing group in 1993 she was the founder of the olive cooperative in 2003 and as a consultant in this sector what she has done is to help hundreds of cooperatives get going and become successful so i wanted to pick joe's brain to find out what cooperatives are how they work what are their specific challenges and whether they could provide some sort of way forward to something which is more just and more democratic in the world going forward. It's a great interview. Joe was really, really interesting. I know that this is going to give you lots and lots of brain food to chew on, whether you agree or disagree. So tune in and welcome to Joe Baird. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Um, thanks for being on it. Um, I wanted you on the podcast really early on because um, I know that you spent your adult life in the cooperative movement. And so you're one of the most knowledgeable people around, really, that I could talk to you about what cooperatives are. And I wanted to do that because as the kind of business world is being questioned by many people in our society about whether it really operates for the common good, you're one of those people who are offering a, a different take on things that maybe people haven't heard about before or, or maybe will revisit the idea. So I, what I wanted you to do, Joe, is just give us a potted history of your lifelong involvement in the co-op movement. Thanks. I grew up in the co-op movement in, to an extent. I went to the Woodcraft folk, which at the Alexi sale calls the paramilitary wing of the cooperative movement. Yeah. <laughs> it's not paramilitary, but it's, <laughs> its motto is span the world with friendship. And we played lots of cooperative games and uh, we met in the co-op hall and it was funded by the cooperative. And that's like a kind of, you know, people who didn't go to the Woodcraft might have gone to the Cubs or the Scouts or the Brownies yeah. or the Girl Guides. It's an equivalent of that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's not religious and it's not military. It's it's a cooperative youth movement yeah. affiliated to others around the world. We had some fantastic international camps, for example. Cool. And then um, as an adult, what happened from there? Yeah. So then... Um, when I was a student, we were suffering from really poor quality accommodation and and exploitative landlords, and we set up a housing cooperative, which meant we were collectively in charge of our own accommodation, and that was my first hands-on 
work as as a cooperator and and um our house at its best was absolutely brilliant we were living and working and partying with with friends and at its worst it was a bit um traumatic as as we it, when there was disagreements and that we couldn't really handle ourselves um but that the experience did not put me off i uh, then worked for the cooperative group in the head office in manchester and i've set up a whole range of co-ops uh, or advised them uh, a workers co-op called olive co-op and we went to palestine and israel on study tours and we imported fair trade palestinian products and to me olive is one of the things that the cooperative movement does best which is responding to the most pressing issues of the day the social concerns and social justice issues and responding in a sustainable enterprise way that that keeps the social movements going and keeps the individuals within it going as well yeah and you've since worked yeah. with over like 350 different cooperatives as a consultant as well so you you're really well versed in this field yeah i'm not quite sure it's that many but it's it's probably a couple hundred yeah yeah and and uh, I joined Cooperative Business Consultants, which is a consortium of other freelance co-op advisors like myself. And we've been um, pioneering the responses to the crisis in the cooperative movement in the UK in the last few years. The crisis was caused by the Cooperative Bank um, discovering a black hole in their accounts after the merger with the Britannia Building Society. Okay, so you mentioned about um, setting up the housing co-op. And what I'm interested really in terms of your passion for cooperatives is is kind of why cooperatives? Why do you go down that route? It's quite unusual for a, a young woman in her early 20s to, to face those sorts of conditions and, and not just put up with it, but actually develop such a kind of grassroots response to it. So what is it about cooperatives that you value? Cooperatives offer collective control over the things that are important, uh, housing, food, transport, employment, and so on. They're, and they're, they're not ideal, but they're always, almost always better than the private sector, and they're often better than the public sector provision as well. Um, and there's actually a resurgence of student housing cooperatives in the, in Britain at the moment because because students are increasingly getting ripped off. They're having to fork out through the nose for tuition fees and they're having to put up with um, substandard accommodation. But through a cooperative, you can take control of your living situation. So when you say that it's almost always better than the private sector, is that is that as a general theme or is that because the cooperative movement tends to target itself at things which... Are, are more likely to benefit than the private sector would? I think it's a bit of both. By definition, cooperatives are people-centred, and by definition, the private sector is money-centred. So when you've, when you've put people at the heart of your enterprise, you have different results and different processes. But when you have private profit maximisation at the centre of your enterprise, you run it in a completely different way. Um, and b- both models have challenges but the fundamental motivation is is very different yeah i, I get that really because and, and i suppose those who are interested in social justice often often point to that kind of uh, split don't they that we have a system that's built really for you know it's the whole the whole kind of gear of the system is for profit whereas what many people want is a is a world which is run based on what people need 
um, which I think is what you've kind of summed up there. Um, I was going to ask you about the um, the, the challenges because you say that each of them bring different challenges. What do you think those different challenges, what are the special challenges of the co-op movement as compared to business and maybe even vice versa as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, cooperatives still operate in a, a market economy and we're all groomed <clears throat> to think that um, the private sector model is is the only way to do it and we're, we're in those habits of being selfish um, and taking what you can out of a situation rather than putting the collective first and so those um, behaviours and policies manifest in, in cooperatives as well. For example, people that just want to freeload in the co-op and take the benefits without making a contribution as every member should. Yeah, and how, how do you actually deal with that? Because that I mean, for progressives, that's often an argument I've heard a lot, not just in terms of the cooperative movement, but just generally in terms of um, building a society built on social justice. That That's what many people fear, isn't it? The um, people will just take a ride and everything. So if you're actually part of a cooperative, how do you actually ensure that you overcome that hurdle and that, and that people aren't just taking a ride and, and getting the benefits? Yeah, there are tried and tested ways of of managing that tension within every cooperative, having policies, having a clear membership policy, for example, of what what each member is expected to contribute as a minimum. As long as people contribute the minimum, then that's that should be okay. They shouldn't be targeted for expulsion. Um, but and and the, and every co-op can make a, a special exception as well. Everyone goes through difficult times in their lives where they can't make the contribution. But overall, they should be making at least the minimum contribution. And if anybody wants to make more, that's totally fine. And so long as it's enough for the co-op to be self-sustaining. So a lot of co-ops organise their affairs internally. Some outsource some things. So for example, Northwest Housing Cooperative in um, Northwest Housing Services in Liverpool. That's a secondary co-op of about 40 housing co-ops in Liverpool and they buy the services off this other co-op that they own. So things like tenant management and repairs, they insource it collectively. It's a very sustainable, strong model. Okay, so can you give us an example of of the kind of thing you've got in mind when you're talking about, um, you know, some of the various ways that, that you ensure I wonder if you could pick something, you don't have to name the cooperative, but pick some, something maybe tangible that people can, can really hang their hat to about what might actually happen, what if you were a member of a co-op yourself, uh, you might be expected to do as a, as a, as a minimum. Because some people won't have heard of cooperatives before or will have only had a sketchy understanding of them. And it will help them understand, I think, about what their responsibilities would be as a member of a co-op. Yeah, well, every co-op has different member responsibilities. So, for example, in a housing co-op, you'd be expected to pay your rent and contribute to the governance of the co-op and maybe contribute to repairs and maintenance. In a workers' co-op, you're expected to do your work and also contribute to the work of managing the co-op. So, for example, Unicorn Cooperative in Manchester, they started with three people, quickly grew to nine and they've now got 40 or 50 members of the cooperative they don't have a boss there's no chief executive officer there's uh, about 50 members who work at least 21 hours a week in in the whole food shop and they also collectively run the business they haven't had a disciplinary or a grievance for about at, at least five or six years because 
they have policies about what work standards are, are expected and everybody enforces that on each other and on themselves. And there's a lot of communication. Every successful cooperative has a lot of communication. Um, the good stuff and the bad stuff, what's and all, um, so that... So that so that the whole enterprise works together and people look after each other. Okay, so that, that sounds really radical in itself, doesn't it? So you've I'm just envisaging this business. Did you say there were forty to fifty people in the business, or did yeah. I miss? Yeah, and there's there's nobody who's in charge really, or, or rather everybody's in charge. So there's no chief executive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that that in itself must bring special challenges. I mean, one of the things that I think of in terms of what's different. <clears throat> sorry, what's difficult about a co-op. Uh, compared with a business, for instance, uh, in in a business, you kind of, I suppose, in a business, if you're running one of those, you, you're getting your stuff done. Whereas in a cooperative, you've got to get the stuff done, and then on top of that, you've got to deal with kind of like all this communication stuff, maybe even politics um, of the co-op movements and stuff like that. Um, and so, how how does that actually work? Because there will be people listening to that and think, well. That kind of thing can never work. You, you need somebody in charge, but you're given a case here of, of something that sounds like it's functioning really, really well. Yeah, and, and uh, though, to be honest, sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, the cooperative group, for example, they rewrote their constitution a couple of years ago uh, um, to make it more undemocratic, to, to make it more that the chief executive has a lot more say. Um, and Whereas East Anglia cooperative society they don't have a chief executive they have four people that share the role between them and it does seem more difficult as cooperatives gets larger to to maintain the democracy and the link with members but m- what's more important is the culture of the cooperative is there a culture of two-way communication um, is is there a good pay differential between the, the highest paid and the lowest paid you know the smaller the difference is the better Mondragon well, in Spain has a, has a difference of three Sorry, six. Yeah. So the chief executive there can none of the managers can earn more than six times what the lowest paid worker earns within Mondragon. Okay, so the, it seems to be like if I were to dig into what what are the the values of a cooperative as opposed to what are the values of a private business, a sense of egalitarianism and a sense of power sharing is is part of that. What else is would you say is part of the the values yeah. of the cooperative movement? Well, uh, these values have been codified by the International Cooperative Alliance and agreed by the global cooperative movement, the, the val- values of fairness, equity, solidarity, that kind of thing. Okay. And the, there's a list of seven principles of cooperation that, that every valid and successful cooperative can be seen to follow. Where, where it's difficult is when where, where organisations call themselves cooperatives but aren't and don't follow the, the, the International Cooperative Alliance set of values and principles. For example, the Cooperative Bank is yeah. still trading as a co-op um, in its name, but is not, <laughs> and, you know, it's not even owned, half owned by a co-op, never mind being any kind of cooperative. And that kind of thing undermines the co-op brand and confuses people quite understandably. Yeah, because that, that was recently bought out, wasn't it? It was cooperative at one point, wasn't it, the Co-op Bank? It was um, owned by the cooperative group, yeah. Yeah. And recently, there's. I'm just. I'm just saying this for people who might not be aware of the history. I suppose. Um, recently, that was that kind of got into a bit of difficulty and and was bought out by hedge funds and all these kind of people. Am I right on that, or is That's that? Right. Yes, yeah. yeah, a majority owned by hedge funds, private capitalists that just want to hoover up businesses in distress and sell them on for a profit. 
And one of the things the Carp Bank has done recently is close the accounts for solidarity campaigns like uh, Palestine, Nicaragua and Cuba solidarity campaigns. So what does that mean to someone who's been in the co-op movement as long as you have to see the brand kind of um, treated in, in, a, in a way that you wouldn't, you wouldn't like? What, what, what kind of feelings does that arouse in you? Yeah, but we've been very angry about that. We've organised campaigns to stop or at least limit the damage being done. So um, conferences and petitions and so on. Our last conference was the keynote speaker was uh, John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer. And it was really great to see about a month ago he announced um, that if Labour were to be elected, they would seek to double the size of the cooperative movement in Britain. Oh, okay, that's that's really interesting. So... I'm just thinking in terms of that. What what kind did he go into any measures in terms of how this would happen? What what they would actually do in order to do that? Is it a case of building up new cooperatives? Is it a case of converting current businesses to co-ops? And what backing did he say that they would provide? What mechanisms? Yeah, I haven't seen the detail. I think it would be a whole range of approaches like that, like helping. Um, what would you advise if, him if you were if you were on his shoulder? <laughs> to. Uh, um, I'd advise him to to have a, a range of approaches for for creating and sustaining cooperatives. Protecting the name would be key, and removing the name from the cooperative bank would be a good start. Yeah. Um, helping businesses like succession, like when a private owner wants to retire, helping that that to go to the ownership of the workers, as happens in France and also happens in Italy, is quite widespread. Can you explain more about the France and Italy situation? I've not heard of that, but it seems a it seems quite a reasonable thing to to offer. What happens in France and Italy? So if a if a private owner wants to retire or, or move on, or if a business is looking like it might become insolvent and close, then the workers have to, by law, be offered the chance to buy the business over if they want to. And that gives them the the time and the opportunity and and a, and a a good incentive to do so because it will maintain their jobs and often workers can turn around a failing business and make it profitable um, sometimes not and sometimes the business is going to fail regardless of what happens and it should be allowed to fail that way so is does that mean that there is over on the continent say there is because the law gives these kind of um you know it because the law gives workers the opportunity to step in and, and run it themselves is there a difference in terms of, are there more cooperatives on the continent, I suppose, is what I'm asking? Yeah, thousands more, it's, it's because it's a different regulatory environment and there's more support, um, like advice and also support in terms of finance money that's available to support new co-ops. Okay, I wasn't aware of that actually, so that's that's an interesting thing in itself. You, you were saying a moment ago that as a business gets bigger, the democracy becomes more of a, a challenge um, what kind of things can a, what what kind of things can be can be done to overcome those challenges of a very big organisation switching to a, a co-op? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it entails a culture change, so there has to be a lot of um, communication and cultural training and retraining and different policies put in place. Particularly, also if you've got an example like trade unions that are well organised, which is a great thing. Um, shifting from being always in opposition to management to becoming part of the management and sharing the power and control, that's a significant cultural change for any organisation. Um, what else? The, the, it needs to be 
uh, like a genuine cooperative attempt, not just a kind of fig leaf to cover for privatization, because we can all sniff out that bullshit a mile away, and that doesn't, that's not going to work. So, for example, railways, that would be very challenging to yeah. convert into a mutual or a cooperative, but not impossible, and it happens in other countries. So, um, but it would need to be, you know, thought about and planned carefully, and um, and and getting all the stakeholders on board, customers, your workers, your pensioners, even, you know, that having a lot of communication discussion about all that and doing it in the right way. Well, that's one of the things I was going to ask actually. If you've got like a really big enterprise, say something like the like the railway system would be a, a good example. Who who actually becomes part of the cooperative? Because you've mentioned it could be tenants, it could be it could be workers, it could be customers, it could be the wider community. So how how would that actually work for something, say like a railway system or or any other big enterprise? Who'd be included and who'd be excluded from from the co-op thing if it's if it were to, to work well? Um, that's that's a difficult question to answer because it just depends on the specifics um on each situation and it can work well for it just to be one stakeholder group like the workers or the customers and it can work well for it to be two the 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 tensions and the the different interests of the different groups have to be managed somewhere at some point so it's either within the board or it's outside of the board or you know you just have to have mechanisms for good communication good conflict resolution and what kind of conflict res- resolution is is good? I mean, I, I know I, I set up um, AFC Liverpool, as you know, which is essentially a cooperative. It's a members-owned football club. It's an industrial and provident society. And as the founder of that, I think I got caught between two stools in an, to an extent whereby I probably, with it being a very young organisation and, and needing to do an awful lot very fast, um, I think I got caught more being like a chief executive and driving things and less being um, a good communicator, a good conciliator, someone who was kind of bringing all different wings together um, because I was caught in that tension of, of, of having a thousand members on the one hand and not really having the capacity to, to communicate with them because it all happened so fast and also having these deadlines that the organisation had to meet in order to to get going so i'm, I'm just wondering I'm, I'm, i suppose i'm thinking aloud in terms of that tension that i experienced myself and i think probably i i well I, it's hard to say I, I was about to say I, I probably got that on the wrong side that i was too much like a chief executive but then on the other hand i'm not sure whether things would have got done as quickly as they were done if i didn't do that so in those situations where conflict does arise and and somebody like me was a cause of, of um, you know, um, consternation by some people as well. H- how do you kind of handle those conflicts to, to try and unify everyone so that the organisation itself um, is stronger rather than weaker as a result of the different voices? Yeah, there's no magic pill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, trial and error is one way, but learning from others who've been there first is another way. Um, and having co-ops network together to support each other and help with those tricky issues is is key. Um, also, having a strong team, leadership and teamwork is, is absolutely key because no one person can do the whole thing on their own. Yeah. And everyone brings different skills and different amounts of time and energy to, to a cooperative project. 
So in terms of in terms of like as a because I started this off by looking at the way business works and the the motivations of business and and also the distrust that I think many people have, um, particularly for big business, maybe not so much small business, but big businesses, I'd say. And as that distrust grows, what what does the cooperative movement offer in terms of real radical social change? By radical, I mean kind of big, what we might call the commanding heights of the economy. I mean, could you envisage, for instance, an organisation like Amazon um, becoming a, a cooperative or, you know, something on that scale, someone who really shapes the economy? Yeah, absolutely. Wikipedia is an example of a collectively run, not-for-profit internet platform, and that's a brilliant success story. The internet itself is a cooperative platform. Um, so there's no reason, you know, that um, cooperative platforms can't can't do just as well, if not better, than the likes of Amazon and Uber. They're they're successful now because they avoid paying tax and they've got a massive amount of capital behind them from Silicon Valley in California. Um, that there people are actively working on cooperative platforms. There's one for musicians. There's a kind of fair marketplace one that um, I need, I'll get back to you with the names of them. Yeah, I'll put in the show notes. Yeah. Mm. And so what do they do? They, they, they're kind of like an iTunes for musicians or are they like a Spotify for musicians? I think so, yeah, that kind of thing. And they're collectively owned and run by the creative or by the people that benefit from it. Um, and you can, you know, you would, uh, the cooperative movement in Britain is, is relatively small, but it does have a long track record. Mm. And uh, we take a lot of inspiration with the countries like Argentina. There's a workers' cooperative that runs the port there. There's like hundreds of cooperatives that have been formed since the, the economy crashed. Uh, lots of uh, workplaces took over their, their workplace when the owners just did one, walked away. And they fought through the courts to take ownership of that. And there's a few in Greece as well. You know, there's a lot of um, fire in the cooperative movement. And and there's also a neoliberal tendency. So some of the well-established um, cooperatives or financial co-ops, they behave more like banks than they do like like member-owned businesses. And so the, there is that tension that we need to fight against and work through. You mentioned like the Silicon Valley capital and, and venture capital. A lot of these businesses like Uber and Amazon in their in their early days and maybe even still now um, received. Is that something that cooperatives tend to... I mean, is that something that would um, violate the cooperative kind of code of conduct that you mentioned to, to receive venture capital from venture capitalists in order to help the business grow or move forward? Or is yeah. it more about ownership? It will, if a cooperative is more than 50% owned by capital or venture capitalists, then it's not a cooperative. Right. Um, that's the straightforward. It has to be owned and controlled or majority owned and controlled by the members. Okay. So, so you could actually have a big infusion of venture capital as long as it didn't overstep the 50% mark? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it's a bit of a poison chalice and there, it's a kind of last resort. There are plenty of ways that cooperatives can raise money um, without ceding control away from members. So uh, so community shares, for example, that's how like um, a few football clubs like FC United of Manchester, they've raised two million pounds from members through community shares offer. Well, I was going to, yeah, can I stop you there? Because I was going to ask about community shares, because I noticed on your on your biog when I, I did a Google on you, it said that you're one of the people who can actually issue 
community shares. And I'd actually never heard of the... I'd, I'd actually, maybe I haven't, I've just, it's fallen out of my head. But can you explain to us what a commu- community share is and how that differs from membership and how it differs from your standard share in a company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can issue a standard mark for community shares, which says that this community share offer meets best practice. Community shares are still one member, one vote, unlike company shares, which are one share, one vote. So, um, so anyone can buy a share, buy a share in a cooperative that offers it, but you still, no matter how many shares you buy, you still only have one vote. Right. Okay. So, loads, sorry, Joe. Carry on. So for example, lots of renewable energy cooperatives have raised the money that they need to buy their wind turbine or their solar panels through selling shares from like say fifty pounds up to um, five hundred pounds minimum to to people to can buy shares in that, and it's still one member, one vote. You see, this this kind of um, responds very well to what I think is a big democratic deficit in terms of in terms of our our civic life, really, because. When you're talking about um, shares, you have one person with many, many votes, um, you know, in terms of standard business shares. And, uh, you know, we're we're recording this at the time when the European referendum um, debate is is ongoing. And one of the things that comes up there is how democratic is the European Union. But it's always struck me from a long time ago that there's the biggest democratic deficit, the biggest kind of use of power that affects our daily lives is is from large companies in particular. And so the cooperative movement, I think, for somebody like me who sees that, um, is quite attractive in the sense that it, it answers that. And um, what I'm really getting at here is I'm, I'm just wondering to what extent you feel that a cooperative, the cooperative movement would offer kind of like being the vanguard of radical change here and could we actually see ourselves? Is it feasible, I suppose, for us to actually have a cooperative-led economy in a major industrial uh, country like, say, Britain or America or on the continent, where it's actually led? That's the norm. And um, that I would love that. That's the vision I aspire to, and it does happen. In, well, the the in Italy, in the Emilia-Romagna re- region of Italy, north of the north of the country 20% of the GDP is generated by cooperatives so that's a significant part yeah. of the Italian economy um, and there's no reason why that can't be replicated in other countries um, given the political will and enough education and, and work on the ground to make that happen. You see I'm, I'm just wondering you see because going back say to you know the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s those people who are on the side of, um, you know, social justice and that that kind of progress would look more perhaps to the state to, you know, nationalise things and, and run it um, in the common interest. Is a cooperator like you um, looking for the cooperative movement to do that instead? Or what's your vision, I suppose? What's the cooperative movement's vision of, um, you know, your your kind of um, paradise, I suppose, if that's not a stupid word. It is a bit of a stupid word, but I think you know what I'm, I'm grasping at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, ideally there, there'd be both um, state-run services and independently, cooperatively run services. Some things co-ops can't do very well. Um, providing services to people who can't pay for them is, is, is tricky, but the state can do that very well and, and takes payment through taxation instead. Um 
the the it's the, historically like before the state got involved in providing services it was cooperatives mutuals and friendly societies that did that in victorian times that's yeah. what ordinary working class people did is form these societies that's when the the cooperative shop started in rochdale in 1846 um to, was to provide good wholesome food because they couldn't get it from the private sector and the state was not providing anything um but then but then as the labor party won power and the state then prov- started to provide things for, for people, then, then the mutual sector declined. Um, but then the state started attacking the mutual sector, and there's no coincidence that it was under Thatcher that um, the building societies were demutualized. And huge swathes of things that owned by the, the commons were, were, were demutualized and put into the private sector. And that is the agenda for, for governments for the last last couple of decades and for the foreseeable future is to is to privatize the commons whether that's um, cooperatively owned commons or state-owned publicly owned commons common resources hospitals schools building societies you name it anything that's commonly owned is is like absolutely being targeted by governments hedge funds and private businesses because they want to get all those resources for their own private personal benefit and, and that's the kind of we we're, we're fighting a rearguard. Actually, we need to defend what we've got, and we also need to build new and better cooperatives and mutuals and public services for the future. So, what's needed pol- politically to 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 make that defence and also to advance um, the cause of the cooperative movement, so that there's simply more of you? Yeah, p- political leadership that champions the commons and the cooperatives that says the, this is this is easily a better business model than the private sector and it's going to be supported and also um political leadership that that defends cooperatives and doesn't at the moment it's very it's a very twisted um playing field private enterprise is given all kinds of subsidy and resources to go and do what it was once um uh, whereas uh, cooperative enterprise is not it could be like universities that are cooperatives or libraries. There could be uh, public transport systems. At the moment, government is privatising where it can to the private sector. Sometimes it goes through the fig leaf of a social enterprise, but basically it's privatisation. And so it needs to have a political decisions to stop that from happening and to look at either keeping things state controlled where that's better, but if it but the cooperative controlled where that's better. It's interesting you mentioned social enterprises because I was actually involved in the social enterprise movement when I set up AFC Liverpool and I've, I've, I've taught, you know, within the social enterprise sector. And, I mean, a social enterprise, for those who don't know, is, is basically just a, a business that is set up to, tr- to trade for that money to then be used for good, you know, however that's defined. And it's a very loose sort of definition it's a little bit like folk music social enterprise isn't it it's very difficult to pin down really but one of the things i i noticed was that when the conservatives came into power on the back of this big society idea that david cameron was putting forward one of the things that disheartened me about the social enterprise movement is how they saw that as a kind of a business opportunity to to jump in and 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 it's interesting that you've you've referred to that as a bit of a fig leaf and I think that was my experience as well. I just wonder if you could maybe tease out some of the differences between a social enterprise and a cooperative. And also maybe talk about to what extent the pulling back of the state 
was maybe an opportunity for the cooperative movement in the way that the social enterprise movement saw it and just kind of pick out some of those those ideas there yeah so particularly the 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 condemn government built on the foundations established by new labor which was um to call a whole lot of things social enterprise and uh, but then use it as a fig leaf particularly for the the privatization of public services but social enterprises that work in this private sector are often not like fig leaf enterprises they're genuine social enterprises yeah and my my definition of them is they're an undemocratic um social enterprise whereas a cooperative is a democratic social enterprise and that's the main difference they can be socially owned they can use their trade for good and they can use their profit for good it's how decisions are made and who owns and controls them that's the main difference okay that's yeah that's really clear when you put it like that actually and um, one of the things I was going to ask there is, you mentioned the trade unions um, early on in, the, in our chat. What role would they have in terms of, because the trade unions are obviously um, very organised already, and you mentioned about them, you know, joining, joining, management, um, joining the management of cooperatives and stuff like that. Do you, do you kind of think maybe the trade unions are a little bit sleepy on this issue, perhaps? What's their role that needs to be in order to develop the cooperative movement and, and champion this? It's it's interesting that in the just in the very last sort of couple of years, there's been a lot more interest from trade union leaders in the cooperative movement. Um, that that there's a and there's a few joint ventures. Unity Trust Bank, for example, was formed in 1984 during the miners' strike when trade union funds were being sequestrated, and the trade union movement formed. Unity Trust Bank, which was then at that point supported by the Cooperative Bank. They've recently had a divorce from the Cooperative Bank. I'm glad to say, um, and so and that was a, so that was an example of a joint uh, joint initiative from the trade union movement and the cooperative movement. Likewise, the Wales Cooperative Centre is is was a kind of spin off from the Wales Tra- Trade Union Congress. But those examples are few and far between. There's more examples of disputes, like um, the the Cooperative Funeral Care, for example. Um, for a while didn't recognise the GMB trade union, just cut all ties. I don't know if that situation has changed. Um, um, But we're fighting common enemies and we're fighting to defend the commons. Um, So there's a lot more scope for for joint working. There's a lot more freelance workers, for example. Um, Now there's millions and millions of people work freelance and self-employed. And unions like the NUJ... And the um, musicians' union have got a long track record of organising freelance in, uh, workers, whereas other trade unions don't so much. So there's a lot to be learned there, and a lot about how because because uh, trade unions and cooperatives often come from the same roots historically, and and the, in those sectors like self-employment, there's a lot of shared experiences that can we can learn from each other and from other countries. Well, that's an interesting point. Actually, I'd not considered this. There is a there is a, a huge rise, isn't there, in freelance work, and and a lot of the work I do is freelance work. And, and what where do, where do where do freelance workers fit in? Are, are, are they people that you would? I mean, are they outside the scope of the cooperative movements? Are they are they people that you would want to co-opt into the cooperative movement? What are the benefits to a freelance worker? Because there's a great deal of I mean, there's, certain, there's, there's definitely uncertainty as a freelancer, but there's also a great deal of independence and freedom um, 
So yeah, where, where does this, this growing army of, of freelancers fit into the, to the cooperative dream? In, in a number of ways. So for example, lots of freelancers club together in what can and should be cooperatives. Um, like for example, cooperative business consultants were all freelance co-op advisors, but we were part of the cooperative together to market our services. And we also buy in some back office services um, collectively and get a better deal that way. Um, and, and lots of creatives and um, artists, graphic designers and so on do that also. So put, work together as a collective or a cooperative to market their services together and okay. also to yeah. share expertise. And then on a broader scale, forming like trade associations, which are kind of trade unions uh, that can work well for freelancers too. Okay, so if there was a if there was a little gang of us say who were say creatives, um, so you might have a filmmaker, you might have someone who does sound, you might have a musician, you might have um, some writers and theatre makers, and they're all out there doing their thing on a freelance basis. What advice would you would you give to them if you had a collection of these people in your sphere? What 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 would you kind of do uh, in order to help them coalesce and see see what benefits were available? Mm-hmm. Yeah, have a meeting, call everyone together that's interested and see what your shared needs are, like to generate more client work, for example, um, So and then how you can market your services collectively together to, to draw that in. Um, Do they lose independence in that, Joe? Do they lose a little bit of freedom in that? It, it, in With some co-ops you do, and in some co-ops you don't, so... In some co-ops, you would say like everyone has to put all their work through this co-op, and so we're a stronger marketing message, and you the the benefits you get as a member are bigger. But in other, other co-ops, you can have a looser structure as so long as it's agreed between the members. It's fine. You can have like so I can continue to do my own freelance work, as well as working through the co-op platform when it suits me. Okay. You mentioned earlier on about um, about the differential in pay from chief executive um, in Mondragon and stuff. What what is the pay like within as a worker within the cooperative sector? And I ask this because I know of one um, local cooperative that's well known, and I think the staff there. I mean, it's kind of like a labour of love, but they're not very well paid. I think they're they're either minimum wage or just above is that a common thing is it better in other words from a pay point of view the way things are structured presently to to be a worker in a private business rather than a worker in a cooperative that that completely varies from co-op to co-op like you say some are like labors of love and people willingly um, volunteer their work because of the other benefits soft benefits they get flexibility control good relationships and so on um, other co-ops get that the best co-ops have that plus more, much more than the minimum wage and much more than their sector unicorn for example they're on in, with wages and in-kind benefits I think they're on about 15 pounds an hour for shop work which is very good um, it's similar if not more at Suma cooperative which is um, the UK's biggest workers cooperative because because what they does Suma do are they whole foods or am I thinking of somebody else yeah, Suma Whole Foods. Oh, yeah. Well, I've heard of that. I didn't realise they were a cooperative, actually. I think I bought things from them, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And and they've decided that um, that they want their take-home pay to be as high as possible. So they've organised the business to get the maximum wage. And you go to their warehouse and you're thinking, wow, you know, normally warehouses, people are on zero-hours contracts. They're on yeah. minimum 
age. And these guys, they're in, they've been working there for years and they're more than happy with their wage. They work really fast and they've got a fantastic kitchen which serves brilliant whole food uh, lunches and dinners all the time. Well, that sounds fantastic, really, because like you say, many workers now, I think, are increasingly exploited or increasingly disposable. Um, there's a lot of campaigns around this. The zero-hours contract thing just seems completely Dickensian to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good example of how workers running their own um, livelihoods basically ensure that they they get a better deal but uh, what what I was thinking if, if i were to if i were to say okay i'm sold and i think this is going to be a great idea and i'm, I'm thinking of setting up a, a cooperative what what kind of steps would you take me through as an advisor hi um I'm ha- personally, I'm happy to advise any cooperative and uh, cooperative business consultants will offer the first hour for free. So if anyone's listening, they want to have a chat about their idea, feel free to get in touch. Um, getting good advice is key and having lots of conversations with interested people is, is key in the very early days. Put a few things down on paper. This is what we want to do and why. Um, and there might be funded programs that can, that can pay for someone to help you or you might raise the money um, yourselves to, to take the next steps. One of the earlier steps would be to become registered as a cooperative or community benefit society. Um, we can help with that. There's the organisation Cooperatives UK provides some national support that way. Yeah, I think we went to Cooperatives UK at AFC Liverpool when when we were kind of grappling in the dark and um, they, they, they helped us with, with things like constitutions and and things like that. And yeah. how, how would you advise them from a business point of view? Is it different from advising a standard business? Slightly. You still have to turn a surplus. You have to sell something for goods and services uh, a bit more than it costs you to make them. Um, but then what, what you sell, how you sell it, and what you do with the money, that's then up to the members, the people who are doing the business to decide rather than some external shareholders and what is the number one reason why a co would fail so if i was getting into this now and i wanted to see what the main reason is that we might fail and and to avoid that what would be like you know the top one or two reasons why co-ops tend not to to survive in the early days not having good advice trying to do things in isolation is is very risky but, but talking and what to, does that what does that lead to if you're in isolation what kind of what is then the the, the thing that is the trap door for you that you end up falling down that you wouldn't have fell down if only you'd had someone to point it out what are those 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 failure points I think establishing a, a culture that's like the private sector where you, you need to establish a culture that's cooperative that's a big key and also that also there's a cooperative business not mistaking the co-op for, to be in a charity um you actually do have to like i say turn a surplus yeah okay that's fantastic that's been dead interesting i've got one final question for you before we before we go and i just want you to kind of um get romantic and stuff and 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 just kind of imagine a world where you know all 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 businesses were actually cooperatives rather than privately owned certainly all businesses of a certain size anyway how do you think society would look like and be like and be different if that was the case the air would be clean the water would be drinkable people would be happy and care for each other 
live longer, children be well looked after and not abused. Um, and why would that be the case under co-ops as opposed to now? Because because the economy would be organised around what's good for people, not what's good for private profit. Okay, that's a good answer for me, yeah. All right, that's my sense. So I'm going to end it there and I'm going to thank you for, for being on my podcast, which is a, a, a new little venture for me. Is there anything else you'd, you'd want to say before we, we go, either you know about the world or the co-op movement or about yourself or whatever that maybe I've not covered? No, that's been grand. It's been a privilege to be on your show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Joe. Bye. Take care. Bye. So that was the knowledgeable and very interesting Joe Baird, a pioneer of the cooperative movement here in the UK. If you want to find out more about the podcast or to read any of my own writings, simply go to alanparry.com and that is Alan spelled the Welsh way, which is A-L-U-N. If you've not encountered that before, that's alanparry.com spelled A-L-U-N. And you can find out more about the podcast or read my writings. So until the next one, take care. And bye-bye.